Amen. Isn't he good? Well, today we're going to look at our mighty fortress, our God, in Psalm 46. Martin Luther is one of the key figures in all of church history, a man mightily used by God to help bring about the Great Reformation. In 1517, as he started to confront the church for its sale of indulgences, that is the ability to literally buy good works and to purchase someone's escape out of purgatory and into heaven, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg church where he served. This act inaugurated his movement from the medieval Catholic church and into the cry of the Reformation, salvation, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Some four years later, he was summoned to Worms, Germany, to stand trial for his writings against the Pope and against medieval Catholicism. And on April 18th, 1521, Luther appeared before the General Assembly of the Estates of the Holy Roman Empire. When directly asked whether he would recant his writings and his beliefs, he responded, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. On May 25th, the emperor presented the final draft from the Assembly of Worms, declaring Luther an outlaw, banning his literature, requiring his arrest, saying, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic. That also made it a crime for anyone in Germany to give Luther food or to give him shelter, and, or, and it permitted anyone to kill Luther without legal consequence. But at this time in Germany, it was run by these small city-states, and his home city-state was the state of Saxony, which was led by Frederick III. Frederick was converted to Christ by Luther and was one of the most powerful defenders of Luther and the Reformation. He protected Luther from this edict, and it was never carried out. But many followers of Luther, who were not in protected areas, came under great persecution. Then some six years later, only ten years since nailing the 95 Thesis on the door. In 1527, Luther experienced his most difficult year of life. A dizzy spell overcame him in the middle of a sermon on April 22nd, forcing him to stop preaching. On July 6th, while eating dinner with friends, he felt an acute buzzing in his ear and had to lay down. He had heart problems, prob probably high blood pressure, severe intestinal complications. He feared for his life with his escalating pangs of death. He was able to partly regain his strength, but a debilitating discouragement came upon him. Then it got even worse. The dreaded Black Plague had entered Germany and spread to his town of Wittenberg. 
Many people fled, fearing for their lives. Yet Luther and his wife Catherine remained, believing it was their duty to care for the sick and the dying. In response to the plague, Luther and many followers of Christ stepped forward in faith, in service, and in help. They took precautions. They used wisdom, but they led with compassion, as if they were serving Christ himself. Although Catherine was pregnant with her second child, Luther's house was transformed into a loving care center for the sick. Then Luther's one-year-old son, Hans, suddenly became desperately ill. With death surrounding him on all sides, Luther was driven to seek refuge in God as never before. It was God's word. It was Psalm 46 that God used to strengthen his soul. And as a result of finding solace in his soul in Psalm 46, Luther wrote that most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It majestically and powerfully proclaims God is our refuge. God is our strength. God's kingdom will triumph. It is one of the longest enduring connections that we still have to the Protestant Reformation. The song was first published in 1529, becoming the battle hymn of the Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our shelter, he, amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. Seeing how God used Psalm 46 in the life of ministry of Luther, during a time of great hardship, during a time of a pandemic, should give us added incentive to see just what did God use his teaching in Psalm 46 to encourage Luther. Well, like Luther, the author of Psalm 46, the sons of Korah, the worship leaders in a temple in Jerusalem, found solace and refuge in God during a most difficult time. The background for this psalm of praise is unknown, but was probably written after a military victory over a foreign power that attempted but failed to lay siege and capture Jerusalem. It might have been written after a time that was recorded for us in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19 concerning the miraculous destruction of the Assyrian army, which was led by King Sennacherib during the reign of King Hezekiah. The Assyrian army was many times more powerful than any other nation. They easily marched through the northern kingdom of Israel that was led at that time by King Shalmaneser, conquering and taking it captive in 722 BC. Then they entered the southern kingdom of Judah, now led by King Sennacherib, with a sure bet of conquering any resistance. No one could stand in their way. They besieged and destroyed Judah's second largest city, Lachish. And now they were coming to Jerusalem. There was no way the Assyrian army could be stopped. King Hezekiah gave all the silver and gold that he could find in the city of Jerusalem to King Sennacherib, trying to get him to spare the city. It didn't work. Real fear must have gripped the city of Jerusalem. The Assyrian army was known for their brutality. They would cut off the limbs. They would gouge out the eyes 
of people that they captured. They filleted the skin off of leaders and noblemen, impaling them on large spikes alive so that they could be lifted up high over the city walls so that the people of the city could see and fear. This was the army encamped around Jerusalem. But God intervened. 2 Kings 19, 32-36 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast a siege mount against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Psalm 46 comes so alive to us as we think about how God used it in the life of Martin Luther, as we think about its historical context. It so powerfully talks about the character and the supremacy, the authority of God in the midst of life's hard challenges. Well, now turn in your Bibles with me because we're going to read Psalm 46. Turn in your Bibles to read Psalm 46, and as I read these words, picture in your mind this historical context. The scripture says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease and to end on the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray together. Father, now as we've read this scripture, as we've we've contemplated how you've used it, Lord, teach us today from it. Challenge us. Comfort us. Give us wisdom and insight into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first truth that we want to look at today is that our God is our impenetrable refuge. Now, we have little concept today uh, of what it really means to need a refuge. 
The word refuge is a shelter in a time of danger, a, a secure structure that provides protection from the elements and from an enemy. Some of us have perhaps had to take refuge from a tornado and hidden in the basement. Some may have even had to take refuge while in the military from the attacks of the enemy. But for the most part, our refuge is our plush, comfortable couch in our living room. But the truth is that we all need a refuge. Maybe not from a besieging army or an impending tornado, but we need a refuge when we are being attacked and assailed by discouragement and fear and trouble and heartache. Where do we run to when we are hurting? Where do we run when we are fearful? Who is our refuge, our mighty fortress? In him, in his shelter, we find refuge, for he is our refuge. In him, we find strength, for he is our strength, a very present help in all of our troubles. The Israelites ran to God in the midst of their distress. They knew that no building was strong enough refuge for this oncoming army. And they knew that no army, that no enemy, that no fear was strong enough to breach God's refuge because God himself is a refuge, because God himself is the strength. God himself is pictured here as the refuge. God himself as the impenetrable fortress with great walls of protection and strength. Strength is used throughout the Psalms to describe God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. God is not just our, our refuge to run to in times of troubles, but he's our strength to guide us through those times of trouble. He has the power to protect us and to give us the help that we need in our times of trouble. Nothing comes to us that doesn't have to first pass by our God. God is our very present help in times of trouble. To help means to support and assist the weak or the vulnerable or those in need. Folks, we are in need. We're weak. We're vulnerable. Jesus said that's why he came. We are weak and unable to save ourselves. We need salvation. The army of sin has besieged our souls and there's no way out. Unless someone more powerful than my sin can come and help me, could come and save me, could rescue us. Luke 19.10 says that of Jesus that he came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save us from sin, from the just penalty of our sins. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. From the greatest person you can ever imagine to the most lowliest criminal you could ever imagine, there's a truth that binds us all together. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, all of us. Mark 10.45 tells us, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve by giving his life for you. He took your place. He paid your ransom. He bought your freedom by paying for your sin through his death and resurrection. 
Has your life been transformed by that truth? Have you put your trust in Jesus, your Savior, your substitute, your ransom? What we could not do, he did. If your life has never been transformed by our Jesus, if you have no fortress, then call upon him today. Ask him to be the Lord and Savior of lives. Ask him to be the leader and forgiver of your life. Pledge your life to follow Jesus as your Savior today. Well, the psalmist describes God as a very present help in trouble. To have trouble is to be in a tight place, to be restricted, to be tied up, to not be able to get yourself loose. The psalmist is saying that there was no way out, that they were caught, they were trapped. The only thing that could rescue them from their trouble was God. There was no way out for the people of Jerusalem, and often in our life circumstances, there's no way out for us. We're caught in a tight place. We're caught in a trap. We need a refuge to run to. We need strength that we don't have. So in our tight place, we turn to God, who is our very present help in our troubles. Another way of understanding a very present help is a well-proved help. God has proven himself over and over again, time and time again, for millennia after millennia after millennia. He has proven that he can be totally trusted, that he's 100% powerful, 100% faithful and true. He has proved that he will help us when we are in our troubles. It is for us but to trust into him. That's exactly what the psalmist does. He trusts, having understood who God is, and now with putting his trust in the all-powerful, proven God, the psalmist declares, therefore we will not fear. You see, fear dissolves when faith is put into action. Fear dissolves when faith is put into action. Did you notice that the descriptions of all the calamities in verses 2 and 3 are all in movement? The earth is giving way. The mountains are moving into the heart of the sea. The waters are roaring and churning with foam. The mountains tremble at the swelling of the seas upon them. Nothing is solid. The ground beneath us almost feels like an ever-increasing sinkhole, like the shaking of an earthquake. Even the strong and powerful mountains collapse and totter and quake. Even the great oceans are tossed to and fro. But the psalmist, in a bold statement of full confidence in God, inspired by the power and the greatness of God, calls for himself and calls for others to not fear. Have no fear. Why? Because God is in control. Because God is so much stronger than any circumstance that they are in. In spite of all the upheaval around them, in spite of the great challenge before them, God can be trusted. God has proven himself trustworthy. And because God is mighty and powerful. Life is like that for each one of us sometimes. Life is like that for us when nothing seems solid. It feels like everywhere we walk, we're walking on jello. Every step is, is unsure. We're stricken with worry. We're hemmed in with fear. We don't know which way to turn. It seems like our life circumstances 
can often feel confused or out of control. And even now, when our days are filled with the ever-growing news of the ever-growing coronavirus, it's approaching us like an army laying siege to the city. What are we going to do? Do we just batten down the hatches and take refuge only in our own abilities and responsibilities? Do we just trust outside government groups to keep us safe? Do we just seek answers for our fears and in pop psychology? Or do we actually believe that God is our refuge? Do we actually put our trust in God in the midst of our trying circumstances? Do you find your protection, your strength, your stability in your God? Are you running to your refuge, your strength, your God? God is more than capable, and he has proven himself willing and able to help. These are days to turn to him and trust, to go to him with our difficult circumstances. God is so much stronger than any circumstance we could ever be in. We need to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God is our impenetrable fortress. Well, the next truth we want to look at today is that God is our inexhaustible river in verses 4 through 7. When push comes to shove, there are only a few essentials to life. Food, shelter, air, clothing, water, and I guess toilet paper. Well, in our modern age, here in the great United States of America, water is something we take for granted. You just walk over the faucet, you turn it on, and out comes clean, drinkable, life-sustaining water. Even in the dry areas of country, even in times of drought, there's still plenty of water for people to drink. But we must remember, this is in biblical times, we must remember that the presence or lack of water is very significant in these days. In the desert wilderness, God miraculously supplied water from a rock for the children of Israel. Often biblical sites, towns, and villages were first inhabited because the presence of water or a well. The ancient city of Beersheba and the fortress of Masada in the southernmost arid part of the nation of Judah had super large cisterns carved out of stone to hold water for the inhabitants of that dry land. But if you go way up north into the city of Dan, there are these great natural flowing springs that feed the Sea of Galilee, that feed the River of Jordan, which allows for great irrigation, giving uh, the necessary water to the crops. Jerusalem there had a, uh, had a stream, the stream of Siloam running through it, which was the only constant water supply that the inhabitants of Jerusalem had. Well, in times of war, when your city is going to be besieged by an enemy, you have to store up food to try to outlast the siege, and you have to have a secure, ready source of water. That's exactly what King Hezekiah does when he's faced with the Assyrian army. Hezekiah's tunnel, or Siloam tunnel, is a tunnel that was dug underneath the city of David in Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah. 
the tunnel channeled the water from the spring of Siloam into the city to the pool of Siloam. With the impending arrival of the Assyrian army, Hezekiah knew that he would need a continual and protected source of water. It's one of the few intact 8th century B.C. structures in the world that the public can not only visit, but you can enter and walk through. It's a masterful piece of engineering. The tunnel is even mentioned in our scriptures in 2 Kings 20.20. says the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all of his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now Jerusalem is, is often called the city of God and was considered the city where the Most High God dwells because of the presence of the temple and the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant. A fresh, continual supply of water from the spring of Siloam made glad the city of God and made it more secure. But the deeper reality of this passage isn't just its historical context, but its spiritual context to the people of Israel and to us in our day. You see, although the foundations of the earth were, were shaking and collapsing and they were in the midst of life, difficult circumstances that seemed out of control, God was taking care of his people. Well, everything around them is moving and shaking. Look at verse 5. What does it say? God is in their midst and they will not be moved. He's their fortress. He's their strength. While their life circumstance is difficult, God is taking care of his city, his people, by supplying them life-giving water. Though the nations rage, though kingdoms totter, God is so much more power that just by the utterance of his voice, the earth melts away. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. He said, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Can you see the lesson? Can you see the truth? Our material needs are supposed to drive us to our spiritual needs. So often we get that so backward. We focus our spiritual life on receiving material things. When it's our material and physical needs that are supposed to be driving us deeper into the hands of our God so that we can see him more clearly, so that we can pursue God and his will. One of the great things that God is doing right now, this day, is to expose us and our world to the truth that our physical needs are supposed to drive us to our spiritual needs. He's helping us all understand that our physical needs are supposed to direct us to him, to his loving and caring and powerful hands. Our first and greatest need is to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first. And then God supplies our needs. Our needs are supposed to drive us to seeking his kingdom first. 
Not asking God, what can you give me? But asking God, how can I do what you want? Ezekiel and and Zechariah and Revelation all talk about a river that flows from the throne of God. If you want to know a life of purpose, if you want to have true satisfaction, if you want to have your priorities in life in the right order, then drink from the river of God. Drink from the abundant supply of spiritual sustenance because it is in God alone that we find our meaning and our purpose, that we find our soul's true nourishment. We can be in the midst of life's most difficult, challenging circumstances. We can be in the midst of a shelter in place because there's a pandemic outside. But at the same time, we can know a peace that passes all understanding. We can know great refreshment for our soul because God is our refuge, because God's kingdom is our first and highest aim, because we're drinking from his life-giving water. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. We are all thirsty. Everyone, everywhere, every human is thirsty. The question today isn't, are you thirsty? The question for us today is, where are you drinking? In what river are you drinking to bring your soul the life and nourishment that it needs? Is it the living water that only Jesus can provide? For God alone gives the water that, our, that satisfies our souls? Or is it the stale, lifeless water that this world offers? A water that, that only leaves you more in need, that only leaves you less satisfied. A water that can't bring life, abundant life for eternal life. Where are you drinking today? God is our inexhaustible river. Well, the next truth we're going to look at today is that God is our invincible ruler in verses 8 through 11. Look again at your scriptures there at verses 8 through 11 and follow along as I read them. The scripture says, Come, behold, the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In God's miraculous hand, the great Assyrian army of kings and Hacharib had no chance. He broke their bow. He shattered their spears. He destroyed their chariots. One single angel took down this mightiest army. As Martin Luther said in a mighty fortress, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What is that one little word that is more powerful than Satan and all of his rage? Jesus. What is that one single word that all the inhabitants of the earth from throughout all of time will bow down and proclaim? Jesus. Folks, the fight is not fair. The war is not a pitched battle. Just one single angel, just one single word shall fell them. 
we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We will not fear. Well, then, we come to that oft-quoted but yet often misapplied verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. This is actually not a call to contemplation. This is not a call to reflection, to just sit quietly and know God. No, this is a call to surrender. This is a call to acknowledge that God is the ultimate ruler, the supreme sovereign, the focus is on God's exaltation. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The immediate application of the verse is to the power and awe of God as he reigns over every nation, as he rules over the whole earth, as he brings to ruin any foe that would stand in his way. We are still silent before such an awesome God. It is a natural human response to, to just be stopped in silence, to be speechless when, we're, when we encounter greatness. Just think how speechless we will be when Jesus and all of his justice and might, when Jesus and all of his holiness and love and purity, when he is revealed, exalted in all nations, exalted over the whole earth. Be still is actually a command. There will come a moment when our whole world will be still, will stop and be speechless before Jesus acknowledging that he alone is the one true God. How about us today? Are we being still? Are we listening to God? Are we surrendering to God? Are your lives so full of noise that you don't even hear him speak as he speaks to us through his word? Are our lives so focused on our fears and our worries and our doubts that our trust in God is failing When's the last time you sat in silence and just simply acknowledged that God is God? He's the almighty Lord of your life. He is exalted. Be still means to stop striving. To be still means you have to stop. We live in a time where life goes at such a fast pace. Of course, until these past few days. These days right now, as we're forced to slow down, these days are days of opportunity to actually stop, to actually be still, to know that God is the exalted God. Today, this day, is our day to be still and know that he is God. But while traveling alone to her convent, an 85-year-old nun got trapped inside a broken elevator for four nights and three days. She tried pushing the inside of the elevator doors, but the electricity went off. She had her cell phone with her, but there wasn't a signal. Fortunately, she had carried with her a jar of water, some celery sticks, and a few cough drops as she entered the elevator. At first, she said to herself, This can't be happening. But then she decided to turn her elevator into a personal prayer retreat. It was either panic or pray, she said to an interviewer. She started viewing the experience as a gift. 
I believe that God's presence was, was my strength and my joy. Really, she said. I felt God's presence almost immediately. I felt like he was providing an opportunity for a closer relationship. Well, think about this with me. Think this morning. Have you thought about the spiritual opportunity these days are offering you? Have you thought about that, that maybe, just maybe, this is now your chance to really be still and know that God is God? Don't miss out on seeing these days as a gift. Don't miss out on seeing these days as a gift from God so that you can grow in your relationship with him, so that you can grow in your trust, so that you can inspire others to grow in their trust. Today we proclaim... Today we proclaim the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, for this written all those many thousands of years ago, and yet it jumps off the page into our lives to comfort us and to challenge us and to give us insight, as it did to Martin Luther those 500 years ago. It does to us today. In the midst of the pandemic around him, in the midst of the pandemic around us, we have a fortress, a refuge, a strength, And it's you. It's not in the world system around us. It's in you, our refuge, our strength, our God. Lord, help us now in these days to see the gift you've given to us now as believers to be still and know that you are our exalted God above all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.